Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Guy Stout on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Glad to be here. So you grew up in Dallas? My hometown, yes. And what was that like as a kid? Well, as a young man, uh, it was uh, an interesting place. I have five brothers and I have six sisters, so we're from a very large family. And uh, it, was, it was an interesting upbringing. Cheaper and, by the dozen kind of thing there. Yeah, that's my dad said, uh, because the last of uh, the two kids uh, were twins. And he goes, they start doubling up, I'm quitting. So, uh, yeah, it's a big family. Uh, Dallas is uh, just like it is today. It's a hot happening place. Unfortunately, uh, as a young man, uh, JFK was shot here. And everywhere I've traveled ever since then, it, now it's more the... TV series Dallas, but when I was younger, it was always JFK. What a horrible thing that was, but yeah. So you grew up in the 60s in Dallas? Yes. Your dad was in the restaurant business? He grew up, uh, he was a a butcher in the uh, Merchant Marines after World War II. Uh, He was, uh, well, Purple Heart, Guadalcanal. And when you say that to a Marine, which he was, uh, they stand up straight. They look you in the eye. My dad was that kind of guy. What did he tell you as a kid? Well, he's a, you know, be a man. You know, we, we learned to grow up quick when we were young and, uh, and uh, work hard. Never put a fish in a man's hand. Always shake a hand firmly. And, you know, he's a man's man. And what was important to you back then? <laughs> staying alive. I don't yeah. know. Staying Just out of trouble. Just being a kid. Yeah, yeah. Try to stay out of trouble. Yeah. What did you end up doing in terms of school? Well, I went through uh, high school here. Uh, we just had our induction ceremony for our football team back in the 70s to our high school hall of fame at Thomas Jefferson uh, here in Dallas. And uh, it was it was a great time. We went to the Cotton Bowl two years in a row, high school playoffs. That's a big deal here, football. Seems like a lot of camaraderie is based around team sports and church in Texas. Absolutely, yeah. We are the buckle on the Bible belt is uh, Texas. You played okay. sports as a kid. Absolutely. Yes, I played just about every sport, track, football, baseball, basketball. Were you football big, was my deal. What, so. You were a big kid. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm still big. <laughs> a little less uh, fit than I used to be. Did you play football in college? 
No, I turned down some D1, D2. Uh, my sons uh, were spectacular athletes compared to me, but uh, I, uh, I kind of lost my love uh, for hitting. I was a linebacker, so I enjoyed uh, playing football. And then one day I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Where did you go to college? I started at uh, Richland Junior College here in Dallas, and then I transferred down to Stephen F. Austin in Nacogdoches. And then I finished my college career at the University of Houston. And I transferred from being a history major to a business major, and then finally finished with the hotel restaurant management degree at the Hilton School at the University of Houston. And what encouraged you to take that route? Well, I, I grew up in restaurants. I was a busboy dishwasher here in Dallas, uh, back at Dominique's. Became a, uh, a waiter there after I graduated from high school. It was uh, just something. Uh, part of my job as a busboy there was to uh, stock the wines. Uh, we had a French French manager, and he cracked a whip, and he asked me, told me to stock the wines when they come in, put them in the right spot, or I'll you know, I'll whack you. And so that was my job. And then looking at those wooden cases as a kid, putting the wines up, you know, I'm 16, 17 years old. I'm looking at these beautiful wooden cases burnt with those great chateaus of Mouton, Aubryon, Lafitte. He taught me how to pronounce the wines. And, uh, you know, I was just fascinated. It just, uh, you know, here in Texas, when you're growing up as a boy, uh, you get a wood burning kit real quick and you burn everything. <laughs> you burn holes in everything. And I saw that and I thought it was like uh, high art. It was wonderful. And a little bit of an exposure or something different. Well, it was uh, it was definitely different. Uh, I had no idea what I was stocking or what, you know, then I learned how to pronounce it. And I learned more about it and I uh, got to try a couple of them and it was pretty interesting. It's on my 18th birthday, I took my high school sweetheart to Dominique's for my birthday. And I was old enough to drink. The owner, chef, sent a half bottle of pomard, uh, poma, which uh, I've enjoyed on my birthday ever since, uh, from my 18th birthday. And if you had an interest in history, you probably also had an interest in the history of wine. Absolutely. Uh, after learning the names, and I, I bought a, a wine book, and I started reading it. As, uh, you know, it, it just kind of grew on me. It just, it wasn't something that was planned. It just happened. And this is the late seventies, eighties? No, it's uh, early seventies, mid seventies. Uh, when I was uh, working and going through it, uh, I started reading the books. And then the French guy left the restaurant on my 18th birthday. I bought a tuxedo and showed up and said, I'm tired of being a busboy. I want to be a waiter because I did most of the side work that was uh, responsible for most of the the dining experience, the uh, Caesar salad, the uh, flambe, saute. We did uh, crepe Suzette, uh, steak Diane. Doing stuff table side. All table side preparations and steak tartare. And, you know, that's uh, so I had the experience and I wanted to make the money instead of getting the side tip from the waiter. I wanted to be the waiter. So. And you probably realized that some wine knowledge could make you some more money. Well, that never really occurred to me. Actually, uh, I knew more about wine than anyone else in the restaurant other than French guy because I had a fascination with it. And then after uh, Jean was his name, uh, after he left, the new manager asked me, if, well, if I would continue to stock the wines and then if I would start ordering the wines. And I went, pay me. And he did, 50 bucks a week. 
It was great. What was it like buying wine at that time in Texas? I wouldn't say I was a wine buyer. I was a wine orderer. As uh, it evolved, I went to him uh, to make sure, and he says, well, just order, you know, we had a par level, just order the wines that are on the list, and I did. When we ran out of something, I went to him and said, they're out of it. He goes, well, get something just like it. So that's exactly what I told the sales rep. Bring me something just like it. A box of wine shows up, and it's uh, some nice Bordeaux. We did a lot of Bordeaux business. And he goes, here, uh, try these and pick one. And I went, I'm really, you know, hey, you need to uh, tell me what's the closest one to the price and quality that we had before. And he pulled one out of the box and goes, here, this is the one I would recommend. I said, well, good, we'll take it. And we'll change the list. And he goes, good, we'll take this box and go try these wines and see what you think. And I went, oh, my God, you're kidding. So thus began my uh, experimentation and education in wine diversity. And how many restaurants like that were around town at that time? Well, Dallas is a very uh, French-driven uh, city uh, back in the 70s uh, that I'm talking about. And it carried on in the 80s, 90s. But uh, there were quite a number. Uh, Guy Calliot was here and Ewalls and uh, Patries. Patries is where I really, you know, that's the place I'd go for my birthday if I didn't go to my restaurant. So a lot of times I feel like the guy who can find the wine ends up becoming the guy who talks about the wines to the staff and the customers. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a fine line between being the guy, the wine guy, and being the sales guy. I love selling wine. It's, a, it's no greater pleasure, and it's not about price points. It's about quality and meeting the expectation of the guest. And I find that's what a sommelier should do, not be armed and dangerous. That's what I call it, and that's a, that's a waiter with a corkscrew. That's not a sommelier. They want to sell you the most expensive bottle on the list that they can get away with. I want to make the dining experience the best it can be, and there's not a price point for that. There's not a price point on pleasure. And so by the time you're working through that case of wine, you're like, I'm into this. Didn't take me very long to get through that case. And uh, no, I loved it. And uh, then from the same guy, I started buying a little side case or two of some German, little Liebfrau Milch, uh, Peace Porter, Burn Castle. That's where I grew up, really. You know, everyone starts with a little fruity wine. And then, uh, you know, you don't wake up one day and go, I'm going to drink red wine. I'm going to drink Cabernet. Uh, it, there is a, there's a journey to get to that point. In restaurants, we sold mostly old world wines because California wasn't really a big player in the mid-70s. One of the restaurants where I was a sommelier, my first real sommelier gig was Arthur's Restaurant. Uh, when it opened uh, 73, 74, I was the part-time sommelier. I was a waiter, tuxedo waiter, back at Arthur's when they opened at Campbell Center here in Dallas. And I got to be the sommelier on the other guy's night off. Uh, back then, you wore the cup, uh, the tasse du vin, around your neck. And uh, you couldn't get away with that today. I mean, just Well, besides being silly, you know, it, it looks awkward. Arthur's specialized in California wine. They had European wines as a customer appreciation and if they had to have Puy Fusse or Chateauneuf du Pape or Poma back in those days, uh, those were big wines. Everyone was very familiar with Bordeaux and, and I was too, 
But uh, having tasted through the old Inglenooks, the Beaulieu's, uh, the Mondavi was uh, just coming in at that time. This is our still early 70s. Mondavi had just started in like 68 or 67, maybe 66 was his first year. But that was Robert Mondavi. And then but Charles Krug was around. And a lot of the old classic guys, green and red, Zen, remember it from the old days. It was a, it was a tough sell, you know, uh, trying to bridge the gap from Bordeaux to Napa Cab or California Cab. It was tough. It was tough. You know, in the 70s, it was a different time. You know, people didn't know. And uh, I was, I was on, I had no idea I was on the cutting edge at the time, but then the, the Paris tasting came around. And when that happened, I was working in retail and, you know, it just exploded from there. That was a, a pivotal moment in California wine history. And I noticed it immediately here in Dallas at retail. When you wanted to put California in front of people and they were kind of hesitant to go there, what worked for you in terms of how you talked about the wines or how you presented them? California did itself a service by having fruit forward, friendly wines, uh, not too tannic, not too too heavily dosed uh, with oak, uh, but just enough. Uh, we all talk dry and we drink a little sweet or a little off dry. We like opulent wines. We like richness and you know that roundness, that chewiness that you'll get from a lot of the California wine. And probably uh, nice to drink with beef. You know, and there's a lot of beef. Well, he's a, yeah, the slab and a cab is what I call. Give me a slab of meat and a cabernet, and I'm a happy guy. And after you graduated from hospitality school, what was next for you? Well, that wasn't until later. I took a, like a 20 year break from college and developed my career in the wholesale restaurant retail uh, business here in Dallas. I work at a fine wine shop called Marty's. It was super fine wine, lots of great spirits, artisanal to the umph degree. Made some really substantial sales back in the 70s on uh, great old Bordeaux because we had, you know, I'm a Bordeaux guy, man. I That was my upbringing. So how was the difference between restaurants and retail? Well, I just, uh, I was tired of uh, being on my feet, you know, uh, at restaurants, you know, every server, sommelier, I know, you know, you, you get burnt out. I mean, you just hang out on your feet five, six days a week, you know, your feet hurt. And uh, in retail, it wasn't much different, uh, but you could sit down a little bit more. And uh, I enjoyed retail. It was a great experience because of the diversity of wines that I got to taste and, and sell uh, and the diversity of spirits, all the great rums, the great uh, cognac, uh, the whiskeys, uh, bourbon, and uh, scotch, uh, just great stuff. It was such a great experience. And there's probably a lot of bottles open for you to try now and again. If they didn't bring us a sample of it, a lot of us guys at Marty's, uh, we'd buy a bottle and take it out in the parking lot. When we got off work and we'd all, we'd share the cost. And uh, because it was truly a great learning experience and we we were all driven to know. And it's you can read every book uh, you want about bull riding, uh, but you don't know anything till you get on one. Well, the same thing with wine and spirits. You really can talk about it, read about it, but really, pull a cork. I imagine you work with some people who went on to also do some really interesting things. Absolutely. I've, I've been around some of the greatest people in the industry, and it's such a pleasure to see them grow. And for me, you know, I get to meet some of the most fascinating people in the world. 
in the restaurants with the chefs, with the the owners and the Baron Philippe, uh, everyone. It's it's such a a great industry. The chateau owners were coming over now and again and saying hi. Absolutely. It seems like they all have a fascination with Texas because we are a tremendous wine market. And uh, as you've seen now, uh, in a vibrant restaurant scene, uh, wine scene, we're, we're just not riding down the street on our horse uh, sipping a long neck beer. There's nothing wrong with that. And it must have been achievable to uh, familiarize yourself with the great wines of the time you know, in terms of what the price points were for that, if you were going in with some buddies, like you could afford to have the first gross. I remember selling the 1973 first gross when I worked at Marty's. We sold them for $9.99 a bottle. And we sold giant stacks of it because people here understood what it was. Texas is still a huge Bordeaux market. The futures market as well as uh, continuous. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great scene. And uh, having seen those things, uh, I pulled a bottle out of my cellar a couple of months ago of 63 grams port. It still had the Marty sticker on it. It was ten ninety five a bottle. And that's 1963. That's crazy because it's, I don't know, 500 a bottle if it's, if it, it's more than that probably. Because I remember, you know, obviously I'm much younger than you, and my first vintage as a buyer that was coming into the market was like 02 white burgundies. And then I remember how different the 03s were and then how different the 04s were. What were some of those like benchmark learning vintages for you where you were like, oh, wow, this wine thing, interesting? Well, I was lucky enough. I, I got to try the great 59s, 61s, Bordeaux, 61 burgundies as well. Uh, some of the 66s uh, in Bordeaux turned out well. 69 Burgundy was delicious. 71 Burgundies, awesome. 70 Bordeaux was also uh, a very good vintage for me. I liked it, the structural uh, components. Not much else in the 70s other than 78 Red Burgundies rocked my world. We tried every DRC. We tried every producer from 78 we could. It's great ones, great ones. And I... No one bought them. No one really got behind them. I w- I'd like to find some 78. You got some 78 laying around Red Burgundy. Let me know. But then uh, going into the 80s, you know, of course, the great 82 vintage, the 89 and 90 vintages in Bordeaux were stunning. And we just got another look at that here 20 years later with the 09 and 010 Bordeaux. So I've been fortunate enough to attend the En Premier in Bordeaux. And uh, those two vintages... I'll have to say, put myself out there, 09 and 2010 in Bordeaux are probably the greatest vintages of Bordeaux I've ever tasted. So the 09s and the 2010s, you can't get really much better than that. Unfortunately, the prices have shot up so much. I bought the 1995 vintage for 50 bucks a bottle, first growth, and I was complaining. And then the 2000s came up and it went up to a couple hundred bucks a bottle. I'm like, oh my God. Then the 05s came out, and it's 500 a bottle. And now you get the 09s, and they're 1,000 or 1,500 a bottle. The 2010s, probably about the same or more. So I can't afford Bordeaux anymore. I'm drinking the Cru Bourgeois or the uh, Saint-Emilion, uh, some of the lesser gnome wines, because I know them. And really, one of the things I coach my Somme buddies uh, and encourage everyone 
you know, look for the good values in Bordeaux. They make 70 million cases a year. Find something in there, and there are great wines. If you didn't make a good wine in 2009 and 2010, get out of the business, really. How long were you in retail? About four years. And then I moved into wholesale distribution. The Arwood Stowe Company, Bill Stowe and I and Ron Poole, three of us, we ran this uh, small company here in Texas for about 10 years. Ended up selling that off. I was their California wine buyer when I started working for them because uh, that was sort of my duties at Marty's, was overseeing the California selections. We all, everyone that worked there had a specialty. And mine, uh, everyone loved Bordeaux and Burgundy. I was charged with doing the uh, California section, and I'm very interested in it. And uh, so that was my specialty. And then when I started with the Arwood Stowe, uh, the first thing I said was, you guys, uh, I'm taking California as the partner and wine buyer. So you guys focus on the other stuff. I'll take your, because the selection we had at that time when I joined the company was not very good. Must have been a very dynamic time in California wine. Well, it was, uh, it was the late 70s. It was 1979. And uh, I was familiar with a lot of the producers from Marty's. Uh, you know, I brought Silver Oak into Texas at Marty's. There were five cases and I bought them. Well, one of the first wineries I bought on board with uh, my company, uh, Arwood Stowe, was Silver Oak. That ended up being pretty popular. Uh, pretty well known. At the time, uh, we were selling it wholesale for 10 or $11 a bottle, and we were having a hard time selling it. People were like, that's too expensive. Look at it now. So that was fun. And then we got in uh, Kerner Rombauer, uh, my goomba, my buddy. Because they were uh, buddies, too. The well, they knew each that, other. They were yeah. part of a little group in Napa. Yeah, you're familiar with them. I wasn't going to say that. But uh, yeah, I'm good friends with that whole group and have attended uh, their functions over the years. Just uh, actually took Kerner Rombauer to one of uh, the lunches about two months ago. And he's, he's still getting around. When did you see the kind of tide turn where the consumers really expressed a lot of excitement about California wines? Well, it came sooner in Texas than it did on the East Coast because... You know, I I dealt with these guys, and they were saying, like, God, got those New Yorkers. Can't get them off Bordeaux. They don't get our wine. And I said, well, I don't care about them. Keep sending it to me. I'll take what they don't want. And, of course, now it's, it's done a reversal. And, of course, European wines are still big on the East Coast. And they're big here, too. Texans uh, like to drink just about everything. We're very diverse. So I imagine you ended up traveling to California now and again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At the, back in the uh, 80s, I was there like every other month. Uh, now I have a young son that's living in Napa, working at Gerard Winery in Yauntville. Go by and see him. His name's Ian. You can't miss him. He's a big redhead. He's jacked up. He just, just go in and look for somebody that looks like they bench press about 500 pounds, and that's him. He's uh, He's a... Great young man. But he's starting his journey into wine, which is a shocker for me. He got graduated TCU last year. And as goes, I'm going to Napa, Dad. He'd already interned at Rombauer in their cellar. Of course, they're old, dear friends. But it was a shock for me that he wanted to get in the wine business. I'm like, I tried to encourage him, don't do it, don't do it. His mother said the same thing. 
then what is they do just the opposite of what you tell them not to do. So, and he's out there. He's enjoying it. Uh, he's starting his career. Why did you tell him not to get into it? I mean, it seems like it's been pretty good to you, the wine business. Well, it's been terrific for me, but uh, it wasn't a planned journey. It just uh, occurred. And uh, there was a passion. I had a passion for it, and I never saw that passion out of him other than get me another glass or, you know, not really the knowledge seeker that I was. Uh, but he he kind of gave me this straight story. because goes, Dad, I don't want to sit behind a desk, you know, all day. I, I like what you do. I'm, I've seen you work. So I said, okay, good answer. So, Was it an important back then when there was maybe less books, reference material, online sources to really just get in there and taste the wine and see what you thought because there really wasn't a lot of other options? Well, once you get the wine bug and, you know, as a distributor, you wanted to have, you know, you can't just have one style of wine or one country. You had to do it all. That was, uh, you know, and working in a great wine shop, you know, those were all building blocks for me. And, and yeah, it's, uh, and it was all books back then. And then the books weren't even current. And, uh, you know, now, you know, I passed my master's over 10 years ago now. And my God, I never used the internet back then. Uh, it was old books. I still have my old books that I put the tabs in and I studied like I was back in college. So when you went to Napa, I mean, I imagine it was less built out and developed with vineyards back in the 80s. Well, it's dynamic what I see now. I mean, now it's, uh, you know, it's like going to Disneyland, going to Napa. But yeah, I could have bought a condo at the Silverado Country Club for like dollars $30,000. And now it's $500. Should have bought it. Didn't. Because I was going out there so much, I considered it. Darn. Missed opportunity there. But uh, And I could have bought some land, got a house out there. I invested in the Texas Hill Country about 15, 16 years ago now. We grow uh, Syrah, Tempranillo, a little bit of Moved, Grenache, and I just added uh, just a small patch of uh, Graciano, a little Spanish variety. So we got four acres total, Texas Hill Country. I put my money in Texas. I'm a big Texas uh, wine fan. So, What's it been like making wine? Well, uh, my winemaking experience has been pretty dreadful. Uh you know, I, I wouldn't even cook with what I made because it was horrible. I wouldn't even use it as vinegar. It was not good. Uh, but uh, I have uh, had some success as a grape grower and selling uh, high-quality grapes. I'm very fortunate to have a, a string of people calling me, uh, wanting my fruit, partly because uh, there's not enough grapes in Texas to fill the pipeline. It's not Chardonnay, Cabernet land. Well, we do that too, but we're doing great uh, Viognier, Marsan Roussan, and some uh, Sangiovese. Uh, Tempranillo is rocking. That's, I, I put half acre of Tempranillo in my, my vineyard because I love what I've tasted from the other producers in Texas. Sometimes when I look at what's going on in Texas and I see people planting what I think of as warm climate grape varieties, you know, grape varieties that did well in Rioja, grape varieties that did well in the Rhone historically. I, I feel like they get an opportunity that California is harder to have happen because the land prices are so high in California. There's a real push to plant a grape variety that's going to bring in more money, like Cabernet or Chardonnay. Whereas in Texas, the land prices are lower. People can really look and fine-tune for the climate. Well, back in the 60s in Napa Valley, the number one red grape was Petit Syrah. 
uh, Zinfandel was a big player there, but it, over the past decades, obviously Cabernet and Cabernet blends, uh, Merlot, Malbec, uh, Petit Verdot, Cabernet Franc, those things have grown in acreage. But here we don't have that prejudice. Uh, and land is definitely much cheaper here, but, you know, we don't, of course, we're Chardonnay, Cabernet drinkers um, and Malbec. Uh, Texas, I mean, Napa Cab, we're one of their best customers. Napa Valley loves Texas because we're huge fans, huge supporters, and purchasers of their wine. But uh, here, you know, we've decided, uh, well, we're, we're, you know, my vineyard is a great example. Why would I plant Syrah, Tempranillo, Moved, uh, because they go well in warmer climates. Yeah, you know, it's it's just a logical uh, progression. I know enough about wine and grape growing to be dangerous. That uh, what we're doing here is is different. You know, the Tempranillo popped up, and I went, "Oh my god!" You know, I'm, I'm a huge uh, Spanish Rioja fan. Been drinking it since the day. But what I'm seeing now with our wines here, after tasting half a dozen Texas Tempranillos, I, I said, man, I'm getting on this. This is great. Put a half acre in, and it's done well. That's uh, three years ago. We got our first reasonable crop this year. Same thing with Syrah. You know, I'm a huge Rhone fan. I love it. Uh, Coroti, all the way down to Chateauneuf, uh, Du Pape. Uh, but those wines, uh, they make a statement. And they, they belong in a warmer climate. They thrive in a better climate like we have and at the same time the marketing doesn't go head to head with california because you're not using the same grape varieties well yeah it's uh you know we're not colliding with them we certainly have our chardonnay and our cabernet here and they there's some excellent producers of those as well but i think uh, we can hang our hat on those Rhone varieties and spanish varieties that are doing so well here tanat toriga from uh portugal uh, those things are happening we're not trying to be everybody else uh, Texan has finally gotten on to the fact that we don't want to be another Chardonnay and another Cabernet. The growers here, and I know most of them, these are good value. It's not a novelty anymore. I used to, back in the 80s, 90s, you paid too much to get a decent wine, and now you can get a good wine at a right price, uh, very competitive with the rest of the world. And I think Texas growers and winemakers are Finally figured it out. you got a big wine shelf out there. How are you going to fit in? What are the challenges for the Texas wine industry and specifically for grape growers? Well, it's weather is a huge issue here. Uh, up in High Plains, you, you'll lose two, maybe three vintages in a decade because it freezes up there. Late frost. It's, uh, it can be very cold because it's more continental. Extremely high elevation, 3,500 feet. In Blanco, where we are, we're at 1,500 feet, so a little bit cooler up in that panhandle than what we have. So you moved to Houston, and what was the wine scene like in Houston? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a booming 80s, man. We were rock and roll. And uh, I set up a warehouse. We had our company going. And then, of course, uh, the dollar went to hell in a handbasket, uh, you know, dropped from eight francs to five francs overnight. We owned a lot of French wines at the time, and we lost any kind of profit we had built into those wines, and we'd already sold a lot of them, hadn't paid for them. But, so it was pretty tough. Uh, California was starting to pop up and really starting rolling. 
uh, but French wines were still pretty dominant. Restaurants there were just like in Dallas, uh, but a little more Italian-centric, which I found unusual because I grew up here in Dallas, and uh, mostly fine dining was French, heavily French influence, if not totally French. And I go to Houston, and uh, you find one or two French restaurants, and the rest of it's Italian. And uh, I'm kind of a closet Italian, man. I love it. You know, those are so I I got uh, and I was very familiar with Italian wines. So I fell into a good bucket. I imported a lot of uh, some of the best Italian wines uh, and and names like Bianchi Sandi and La Scocca and you know some great great wines uh, back in the day before the big Brunello boom or Barolo boom that we see now. And what else did you see in Houston when you got there? Well, it's uh, a, a big city, and I was from big city, Dallas, and I go to Houston. I'm like, really? This is a bigger city than I, I know. Saw some dynamic restaurants, diversity of restaurants. Retailers were everywhere. Now it's uh, kind of shrunk up to just a handful of players. Uh, we, Of course, Specs was there, and, and uh, you know, great diversity of product, you know, and it, Houston didn't have, I, I think, the same boundaries I had in Dallas. It seemed like the wide open spaces. Everything was acceptable. Everything was cool and new, and let's do it. I still see that in Austin today. If it's weird, Austin wants it. And it seems like Houston came out of the late 80s financial crash that so affected Dallas. It seems like Houston came out of it a little better. Well, when we had the oil uh, situation, that really crushed us. That was mid-'80s. And then uh, after that, uh, you know, of course, I've been there long enough now. I've seen the ups and downs. And, uh, yeah, we're a little more buffered with uh, diversity than we were back in the-'80s. With We were pretty dependent on oil. And now we're such a prosperous import, export, banking, agriculture. We, we got it all. You know, we're, instead of just oil— we got it all. So what does the restaurant scene look like now from how you remember it? I mean, what are some of the real big changes when you look around? And go, wow, that wasn't like that in the 80s. Well, the chefs in uh, Houston, just phenomenal. Diversity of food. If you like Asian food, if you like Chinese food, which region in China do you want to go eat today? Or Thai? Or Laotian? What, what do you want? Indian? Do you want which part of India? So... A huge diversity. We're more than barbecue and steaks and Mexican food. And we have bunches of those, too. And I love all those. And when people would come to you to learn to be sommeliers, did you find that to be a diverse group of people as well? Well, yeah. It's, uh, I tried to pay back when I got involved. Uh, and I was, you know, if it weren't for Fred Dame, Tim Gazer, Wayne Belding, uh, Doug Frost, a lot of the the masters took me under their wing and they helped me. They did tastings for me in their homes, you know, in their homes to help me get through this. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a gracious act of kindness on their part. And they never charged me for wines or their time or anything. It was, I, I, I would go to them, but these guys, uh, they've been over backwards to help you. And that's what I've tried to do with the, my team in Texas. And around the country, wherever I see some psalms and need some help, in St. Louis or Chicago or New York, I'll sit down, I'll do a blind tasting for them. I'll supply the wines free of charge, 
donate my time to them to try to help. So I'm paying it forward. How would you compare or contrast the Texas sommelier community to other sommelier communities, either in the United States or elsewhere? We're Texans, and uh, we're very proud of that. Uh, we kind of grow up uh, here uh, respecting other people and uh, helping other people. It's, if you've ever been to Texas, uh, someone will open a door for you. It's random acts of kindness and being a gentleman or a lady means a lot here. So I think we, uh, we've got a close knit group. Uh, we all support and look after each other. There's, uh, just this, this love of the industry and wanting to help the next person. So yeah, that's, yeah, uh, I think we're, you know, kinder, gentler, and it's, uh, it's a great industry and we, uh, plus we'll threaten to kick your ass <laughs> if you give us a hard time. Do you think there's a Texas style of wine service? Well, we, we all uh, have the same standard. Uh, I think we're a little more, not quite maybe as polished as other psalms I've seen around the planet. We certainly don't do the rinsing of the glass of super formal service. I think we have a very casual approach to, uh, you know, I think we want to make the customer happy a little bit more here because uh, we genuinely, well, not that sommeliers other places don't, but I think we we try to make a connection with our guests a little bit more. We want to know them. We want to make them happy. And it's all part of being a, a gentleman and a lady and a, a great server connecting with a customer. So when you were a sommelier, I feel like you were a young man. I was, yes. That was probably unusual at the time. And probably the people who knew about wine were older people. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, But, you know, that's, I was... Uh, a mature-looking young man. Precocious. Again, you yeah. were big. You were a big guy. Well, I don't know how big, you know. But, yeah, I was jacked up. I was a football player. And now it seems like when I look in markets like Austin, a lot of young sommeliers. Have you seen that progression? And do you, in a way, think of yourself as, like, one of the early young guys in the Texas wine industry? Well, I looked up to people like Tony and James LaBarba when I was growing up here. Uh, they came in the restaurants I worked in, and, you know, Tony LaBarba with American Wine and Importing, what a great guy. And he was sort of the the godfather of Texas wine distributors, and he was the guy. I ended up working for him in the late 80s. His appreciation of food and wine, uh, his knowledge about wine, and his portfolio was fantastic. You know, it was it was just a great guy to know. And he wasn't pretentious. He was he was just a, a guy, a good Italian guy in Texas, and he was terrific. And his son James, uh, equally uh, intelligent and wonderful. Eventually, you make a transition from having your own wholesaler as a partner to working with Glaciers, and how did that come about? Well, we sold our, our distributorship, and uh, I went to work with the guys who bought it, and uh, that lasted for about a year. And then I just, you know, I decided to, I was approached by Tony LaBarba and said, come see me. And I'm like, yes, 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 sir. And uh, he asked me to come to work for him. And I told him yes. And I took over his operation in Houston, which is a multi-million dollar operation and uh, had about 180 people working for me and uh, reporting to Tony. And 
the American Wine and Importing, the company Tony had, and James. And I went to, uh, you know, I was, it sold to Glazier. And Glazier asked me to come to work for them. And I did. And I've been with them now 23, 24 years. Did you find that not pretentious was a real key hallmark of being able to sell wine in Texas? I think our customers, our clients are much more geared to dial them into the right wine and they're your friend forever. And I don't care if you pronounce it properly. Hopefully you do. And that's what I try to coach. But uh, I think the more casual approach is it's more fitting for me. Did people start to act a little bit different towards you once you got the MS title? Yeah, that that's it's sort of uh, the uh, rose and the thorn. Of course, uh, one week I'm uh, not a master, and the next week I am, and all of a sudden I'm really smart. And uh, it's kind of a backhanded compliment, really, because what was uh, the week before? So, yeah, and, and I appreciate uh, being a master and – all that goes with it, I've, I've been uh, very graciously rewarded by friends and, and associates around the country, and especially in Houston. They bust open the best bottles when I'm around. I love it. It's great. Guy Stout, he'd like to see Texas be successful. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Guy Stout is a master sommelier, grape grower, and a member of the Glaciers distribution team in Texas. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Long before uh, California was even considered, uh, when I waited tables, most of the guys would say, well, California, they don't even have a vintage on the label, do they? And, you know, uh, uh, bring me a glass of Chablis. That meant bring me a glass of white wine or Burgundy. That's a red wine. And then they wanted rosé. We just poured a glass of uh, white wine and spilled some red on it. That was (laughs) a true story, actually. (laughs) I did it.